Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Jody Vanson for Mike for the next couple of weeks here. And I want to dive right into our first topic because we only get our next guest for just a few minutes. He's a very busy individual. Uh, Vancouver Park Board uh, actually pointed to the provincial government for uh, the delay in allowing legal responsible alcohol consumption at beaches and parks during this pandemic. You may have heard Mo Amir and I speak about this yesterday. Lots of frustrated Vancouverites pointing to neighbors in North Ann and Port Coquitlam as examples of how it was turnkey. It really works for citizens to have outdoor space to socialize safely in this pandemic. Unfortunately, the complexities, uh, let's call it red tape, around how Vancouver is set up specifically, it's become a, a, a bit of a hot potato. And our next guest offered the uh, park board a solution uh, last month, in fact. Uh, that could have really made this happen quickly. Unfortunately, the Park Board uh, didn't take that opportunity or that offer. To talk us through what is a very complex back and forth, we welcome uh, Attorney General, the Honorable David Eby, to the program. Thanks for doing this. Morning, Jody. So can you give us an idea of what was being offered by you, by the province, in helping uh, the City of Vancouver allow for uh, responsible alcohol consumption at parks and beaches? Yeah, we Vancouver is the only city in British Columbia with a park board, uh, and the liquor regulation uh, in British Columbia is not totally clear. Uh, I agree it could be clearer uh, that the park board has authority over parks with respect to liquor. And so the initial discussion was, okay, uh, you know, maybe we should have the act amended, change the law for the park board. And we had a look at it and we said, look, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, there's a bunch of uh, competing spots uh, for the available legislature time. We're sitting in August already. The schedule is full. We realistically can't get this on the on the board uh, and implemented. And, and I looked at the timelines. It was looking like about a year. So we needed something that was going to work uh, and that was going to respond to the park boards. What I understood the park board's request to be, which is that they were going to designate some parks uh, where people could drink and uh, that they were going to allow that to happen. So uh, staff here did a ton of work on how that could happen. They prepared uh, draft regulations to allow the uh, these parks to be designated by the regulator, the uh, Liquor and Cannabis uh, Regulation uh, branch of the Ministry of Attorney General that would designate these parks as areas where you could drink. Uh, and then the park board motion came on and, and it was right there in the motion. And then the, and the park board... Uh, unfortunately, uh, voted against um, that uh, provision and said that they preferred to have the act amended. And I was, you know, I was surprised uh, given the work that had happened at the staff level about that. And, and yeah. so I wrote them a letter. And I said, I just want to be really clear here so that you understand if you want to have drinking in the parks this year, this is how it has to happen. And, and I'm surprised you voted against it. Um, so can you clarify for me that, that you don't actually want that to happen this year? And I haven't had a response yet, but I, you know, I've obviously... Um, disappointed uh, for those people who are looking forward to it, a bit confused about what the park board's plans are, uh, and uh, and just trying to facilitate uh, whatever their vision is for Vancouver Parks. We have Park Board Commissioner John Cooper joining us later on in the show. We will grab a clip of what you just said, play it for him, and ask him exactly that question. I want to switch gears here, uh, sorry for the pun, but to ICBC we go. British Columbians very much looking for some relief on our pricey insurance, as certainly for young people, um, if not a rebate for those of us who maybe are road stars, but the young people who are really feeling the hit here. Um, any relief in the future for us on this file? Yeah, I, I mean, certainly uh, very good news for British Columbians, especially uh, more inexperienced drivers coming in May of next year with our new insurance system. People are going to see an average of a 20% uh, reduction. That's about $400 on average for drivers. The inexperienced drivers are going to see a very significant benefit. You know, I hear people say, oh, you know, my uh, son or daughter or granddaughter drives a uh, an old beater. I don't understand why the insurance is so expensive. And the issue is that... Um, they're at a significantly higher risk of running into someone uh, statistically, but also the person they run into will then sue them in BC Supreme Court 
through a two-year process with multiple levels of experts and all the associated costs. And that's what uh, the insurance is covering, actually. It's the legal process. So when we remove that from the equation with this new insurance system, uh, the savings from that uh, are going to be passed on to those drivers that are driving older model vehicles, and they just need basic insurance and peace of mind for their parents that they're going to be looked after if they're injured. And that's what we're transitioning to. In terms of COVID and the reduction in the number of accidents because of reduced traffic, I'm really hopeful that um, this is going to be a, a very good financial year for ICBC if the trends continue. Uh, accidents are way below historic norms. Uh, and uh, what we're doing is we're saying at year end, um, we'll do an assessment of what happened this year. Uh, there's also uh, you know, the possibility of more impacts from a second wave of the pandemic. Some are good, some are bad for ICBC. So there are quarterly reports coming out from ICBC about the financial impacts of COVID. And at fiscal year end, there'll be a decision made about how to use any surplus, if there is one, for the benefit of drivers, and in particular, uh, whether to issue a rebate or whether to have it remain in capital to provide rate relief for future years or some combination of those things. Uh, and it's just uh, too early right now to make a decision about that. But, uh, but we did pass a law that requires that any surplus will go back to drivers. And when is fiscal year end? Fiscal year end is the end of April. End of April. So, yeah, we're nine months out of any type of relief for drivers at this point? Uh, yeah, so we're talking about uh, uh, yeah, eight or nine months to the implementation of the new system and any COVID-related rebates. That's correct. It is a tough pill to swallow for many British Columbians who are struggling uh, to make payments on so many fronts that our insurance, our required insurance is so pricey. I know you understand that. You're the person who dubbed it the dump- dumpster fire. And uh, as always, we appreciate you... Uh, you responding to our request to have you on even when we're squeezing ourselves into a teeny tiny window here. And I could go on for another half hour talking with you, David Eby, but I promised I'd have you off the air and onto your next meeting in, in 20 seconds from now. So thank you for doing this. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Jody. There are lots of initiatives ICBC has around COVID. And so people who are feeling the pressure should speak to a broker. There are options for them to reduce their insurance costs. All right. There's there's one solution. Uh, you're bringing them. Thank you very much. Uh, that's David okay. Eby, BC Thanks, Attorney General. Thank you so much. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. I know people are going to want to call in on this. And if you do, we'll get to your calls a little later in this segment. 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. That's a toll-free call. A star 9898 on your cell if you want to chime in on what we just heard from uh, Attorney General David Eby with regard to ICBC. It is, uh, it's going to be quite some time, eight or nine months before there's any relief from ICBC for British Columbians. Um, We just heard that straight up, making no excuses from Attorney General David Eby, but standing uh, by on the line and listening in is uh, someone who I'm sure wants to uh, give his view as well. Let's talk through from the opposition's view. We bring in Liberal MLA for Richmond, Queensborough and the ICBC critic in Jazz Johal. Hi, Jazz. Hi, Jody. So what did you hear there? Well, you know... (laughs) This has been going on for a while here, and it's quite frustrating listening to David because uh, you know, Mr. Eby uh, should know better. I mean, we've had uh, public and private systems across Canada and North America that have already sent checks and provided rebates uh, to their customers. Uh, we've had $140 checks mailed out in Manitoba. Uh, we've had uh, various rebates in Ontario. Uh, which is more as a private system. Manitoba is a public system. In the private system, they've averaged about $150 in, in rebates per customer. And across North America and the U.S., various states have also, other private companies have sent money back to customers. So I find it rather absurd to say that British Columbians should have to wait eight or nine months to potentially get a rebate. Um, you know, right now, besides rent, I think, you know, paying your ICBC uh, rate every month is probably the second highest expense for a lot of families and individuals. And they need help today and now, and they should be doing so. There's no doubt ICBC has saved money. They have money in the coffers. To think that they're going to wait four, eight months uh, is absurd. Secondly, I would also remind British Columbians that rates have increased significantly, particularly for young people. So you're paying a lot more as well. uh, And that money is coming into ICBC. Even to this day, Jody, I bet you if you're driving around Vancouver or the lower mainland, Traffic still has not returned to pre-pandemic levels. Has it gotten busier? Of course, in the last six weeks, it's gotten busier. But Thank it's goodness. still less yeah. than what we generally see pre-pandemic. And Mr. Eby has actually said that on the record. So even to this day, I guarantee you they're pulling in more money 
than they usually do, or more profit because people are still paying and they're not driving as much. So there's money there in the coffers. So to say that it's not is absolutely absurd. And like I've said, public and private insurance companies have returned money across North America, yet ICBC still refuses to do so. Yeah, the thing that really peaked for me was like, okay, well, we're going to have relief. There will be relief. It's coming in May. Okay, it's August. I mean, people need relief now in a pandemic. If there's even a couple of hundred bucks, if, uh, Chris Sims had put out from the BC Taxpayers or Canadian Taxpayers Federation had put out a note saying, you know, if you average out what most Canadians have gotten back from their insurers, it's a right around $280. That's a lot of money when maybe both if not one person that lives in in your in your house is not making anything you know you know stringing things together here in a pandemic i feel the stress of my fellow british columbians here the other thing that peaked with me jazz and i know you get this a lot i've i but i i'd be remiss if i didn't bring it up because i'm already getting people tweeting at me heather saying jody could you ask mr joe hall how the liberals can criticize the ndp when they were the ones who stripped icbc of their reserved monies uh, what do you say sure. to that Sure, yeah, I mean, I, I get that a lot. And sorry, I wasn't in government at the time. This is my first term, but I'll definitely answer that. Yeah. The money, first of all, you have to ask that question, who owns ICBC? We do. That money, when there is profit, over many years, does get taken out and added to the general budget to deal with other cost pressures that are there, health care, education, all those pressures that government has to deal with on a regular basis. We have done this as BC Liberals. The NDP in the past have done this as well. That's been part of the process. But to argue that that's what ICBC's core problem is isn't right. If you look at what's happening with ICBC, A, we're much more litigious and that way people have a tendency to go to court. Why do you go to court? Because ICBC isn't dealing with you fairly. Cars today are much more uh, advanced technically, so they cost more to repair uh, as well. Then you throw in the fact that we're on our cell phones and there's a greater increase in cost because of accidents because we're not paying attention as much. There's a litany of reasons why we have had those cost pressures. They have been there. But what, what's happening here, and look, ICBC has lost money in the past and made money. That's, it's, it's been there. It's going to be there. It's not going away. That is not the reason why you should be holding money back, number one. The second issue is the system that ICBC has now brought in where 18-year-olds are paying $5,000 a year aren't, isn't fair. And okay. ICBC came to us when we were yeah. in government three times with that same bloody plan. And we said no, because it's not about what's the retail issue here. It is what's the cost for the average British Columbia? What's the average cost for mom and dad who are going to have to pay those bills? And we said no to that three times. NDP and Mr. Eby said yes to that plan. And that's why you're seeing British Columbians pay significantly more money, number one, because they're never going to challenge ICBC. These guys created ICBC in the early 70s. Secondly, now they're not returning that money. So to say that, oh, it's because of the way the, uh, way the Liberals handled, handled the... Um, the uh, the corporation over the last 16 years. It's absolutely absurd. ICBC rates have gone up 20% over the 16 years the BC the Bills ran it. Under Mr. Eby, they've gone up well over 30 to 40% in that time, in the short three years that they've been running. Uh, and ICBC. in that, Jazz, but in that are all those those pieces of the puzzle that you laid out there. Like cars, it used to be you get in a fender bender in your, your 1982 Honda Accord and it didn't cost $7,000 to replace it because it had sensors on it. I mean, we're living in that world. And then exactly. we're also living in the litigious sort of, and is, is that the right word, where Mr. Eby did point to the fact that right now, and, and this is very real, that right now somebody can get in a mild fender bender and turn it into something that becomes a huge court case and costs the government uh, a great deal of money or costs ICBC a great yeah. deal of money. Those, are, those pieces of the puzzle are real and a responsibility of the community. The one that gets me is the one that you brought up first, and I think we're on the same page with, Jazz, is how... This impacts young people, young people who are the most hard hit right now with regard to getting job, keeping keeping employment, getting to and from uh, college and university if, if they can afford their tuition in a pandemic. The relief eight or nine months from now isn't going to help those who are really in the most vulnerable position here. So how do we help them? Well, I think your listeners and you have to continue to pressure. I mean, I think it's absurd. Uh, the ICBC has essentially been slow walking this thing. And that's not right. Like I've said, it doesn't matter if it's a public or private system. But both yeah. public and private systems have returned money back to ratepayers. Ontario yeah. and Manitoba are classic examples of that. In various states in the U.S., they've returned at least six to $700 million back to ratepayers. 
Yeah. But here, ICBC has hit a cash cow, which is the pandemic, and they've had money pouring in. And they've been slow walking this. Because the thing to, to argue that we should wait till September for the next quarterly update, or as, as Mr. Eby said to you, we'll have a better sense of it next year. What accounting system are you using where you don't know uh, day by day, month yeah, by month, how much at? money is coming in? They know today and now how much money is coming. Give me a break. Every accountant working for any corporation or any small business knows how much they're pulling in every month. ICBC has that number. ICBC and Mr. Eby are not sharing that number. That's the problem here. Let's just try and squeeze in one caller here, Rick, from Vancouver. Uh, Do do you have a question or a comment here? I just basically have... Hi. Um, I have a question uh, for Mr. Joel. Across across Canada, most of it is, is no fault. So when there's comparisons made because of private in other provinces being cheaper than ICBC, um, is that fair? Because it is no fault? So it is cheaper to operate? Yeah, I don't one, a lot one of minute here, to go I'll, here. I'll attempt to answer yeah. that question. It's a good question. So look, we, no fault basically means when, when, when I, no fault is brought in, it essentially is going to mean that you get injured. It's kind of like WorkSafe, which is... A work safe will take care of you for the rest of your life if you're uh, uh, injured in, in a very bad way. What we're saying here, ICBC is going to uh, uh, basically control a work safe type system or create a work safe kind of system. Under the present system, if you feel you have not gotten proper treatment for ICBC, you can sue. You can also, as a customer, decide, look, I like this uh, occupational therapist. I work well with them. They have a sense of my body. They're taking care of me. Under the new system, you are within this giant bureaucracy we're going to create called ICBC, and they're going to take care of you for the rest of your life. That's the difference, number one. And number two, we do not have a sense of how big the system is going to be and what the cost is going to be as well in regards to running it. We're through that system right now. They're trying to create it over the next year or so. There's a tremendous amount of concern by occupational therapists, lawyers as well. And of course, some of them are going to lose their, lose their jobs, which I understand, but a lot of them I will probably end up working for ICBC as well. So they're very are. different systems. Gotta well, get, I, well, I got to get. I'm up doing... against the clock, Jazz. I got to go. Right. I'm on the network. Sorry, I know it, it's a tough file to cover off in in uh, long form here, but I do appreciate you trying to answer that complicated question. Thank you for your time, Jazz Johal. Thank you, Jody Vanson, for Mike this week, and it is time for Baldry's Beat. We connect with Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, the man with the finger on the pulse of all things COVID nineteen in British Columbia, and to our neighbors to the south. And to the east of us, Keith Baldry is here. Good morning, Keith. Morning, Jody. So let's dive right into uh, what was a much-anticipated briefing from our provincial health officer and Dr. Bonnie Henry and uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix uh, yesterday afternoon at 3. Your thoughts on those uh, three-day or three uh, windows, what do we call them, three... Uh, three reporting. Three. Reporting, reporting. <laughs> Actually, I thought the yeah. numbers were better than what could have been. Um, I thought uh, the over-under was going to be about 135. We'd been tracking about uh, 50 a day going into the weekend, and I've noticed in these three-day reporting periods that the Saturday to Sunday period is usually lower than the other two because I think there's less testing going on. So 131, there was fears that um, we've been escalating our cases uh, going from 10 a day on average a few weeks ago, then to 20 uh, then it was up to 30, got to 40, then it was 50 last, at the end of last week. And that was concerned that if we kept going on that trajectory, we could hit 60, 70, 80 a day. And that would no longer mean we were flattening the curve. So 40 or 50 a day is still uh, troublesome. Dr. Henry is, uh, again, saying we've got to do more to um, push that number down. And the chief uh, source of concern continues to be the behavior of people largely between the age of 20 and 29, uh, partying in gatherings. And that's led to the unprecedented uh, situation where you've got uh, more than 1,700 people now in quarantine as a result of being exposed to the virus, not because they went to a party, most of them, not not all of them, um, but because someone in their bubble or their family did go to one of these large gatherings, whether it was Kelowna or the now notorious parties in Metro Vancouver about uh, more than a week ago that has led to a staggeringly large number of people being forced out of work, out of their their community, basically, to hunker down in their basement for two weeks as they uh, uh, go through the incubation period. And it is, I mean, there was the one piece that Dr. Henry, when she said, well, there is some good news 
And I mean, if there is good news in, in reporting these sorts of numbers when we're seeing the rise here, but that most of the surge are from folks who are already in that number that well over a thousand now isolating mm-hmm. and are linked to those parties. Like it, if we could learn something here, let it please be that uh, it is a reality that it is somebody that sat next to you, too close to you on that patio or in that space that you decided, oh, well, it's just this group of people, it's fine. And then that entire group goes into isolation and, and ultimately a good number of those end up testing positive. Yes, and, that, and there is um, some comfort there that this is sort of a, a confined group of people, um, all uh, unfortunately paying the price for uh, some behavior that shouldn't have happened. But mm. it's also an example of the um, huge amount of work that's going on in terms of contact tracing. So there's really hundreds of people employed by uh, public health uh, who are trained p- questioners uh, who will phone someone who's tested for the virus or interview them and really walk them through their life for the last two weeks to find out where they've been, who they've been in close proximity to, uh, particularly when in indoor situations, and then contact those people and just fo- sort of follow this pattern of, uh, of people who have been exposed to the virus. And that's how you get uh, end up with such a large number of people now in uh, self-isolation or quarantine. So there's a huge amount of work being done by contact tracers. And as Dr. Henry made the point yesterday, why that's so important is that's a very quick way to isolate the virus as quick as, as much as possible. If you can get yeah. as many people uh, and contact them as quickly as possible after they've been exposed, it's much easier to contain the virus from spreading even more because people will be told, look, you've been exposed, you've got to self-isolate or monitor for symptoms and minimize your contacts. And that's, that's a good way to sort of tamp down the spread of the virus. But so, And she says the next two weeks are absolutely critical because we're coming out of uh, weekends of behavior where people are, are, have been congregating, uh, in many instances, indoors, and the virus is bound to spread. That's the thing that really makes me nervous is when people are starting to talk about, look at these numbers, look at this number, look how big these numbers seem right now. And and it's like, well, wait two weeks, guys, unless we change our behavior right now, unless the people that are like snubbing their nose at the public health authority, the, uh, the protocols put in place. Um, it's only going to go up until we get back to that. Okay, let's all be all in here. Let's get these numbers as low as humanly possible because that's the number. The, the number in September is going to be what makes us feel more confident about the bigger picture question, which is back to school, Keith. Yes, and that's why that's why in some ways the numbers presented yesterday were a little bit encouraging because it, wasn't, uh, it was 131 over three days. Um, so it was, you know, more than 40 a day, um, but not 50 a day. And that was, that seemed to, you know, if that pattern continues, if we're not going over 50 a day, if we're starting to go down again, that's encouraging, but mm-hmm. we're going to know more in the next two weeks. We could easily go to 60, 70 a day. Now, having said all that, one thing to take, um, considerable comfort in is the number of hospitalizations and is very low. Our deaths are very low compared to a lot of jurisdictions including Alberta and notably Washington State, and that's, uh, that's comforting. But that, the problem with that, it's, that can be a bit of a mirage because, uh, as I think we talked yesterday, Washington State is starting to notice that the, the big spike in cases of the, of the under-40 crowd has suddenly stopped, and it's now the spike is in people aged over 70, and their hospitalization rate is going up. And the trouble with that is people over 70 are more likely to be hospitalized or face death, and that's been the experience in jurisdictions around the world, and that's why we have to make sure we don't see the virus spread again to the older population in B.C., but that can happen if you see a bunch of younger people partying Mm. like that and then going and inadvertently exposing their their parents or their grandparents uh, to the virus. Yeah, not thinking they need to isolate themselves from their parents or grandparents after having been in that close quarters indoors situation that put them at risk. It just, exactly. it is a it is a chain reaction that we definitely want to not be our reality here in British Columbia. I love this one. Um, I'm working on my column for the Orca and the, and the one quote that I'm sort of jumping off on here that Dr. Henry said yesterday that I, I think bears reiterating. And she said, I quote, if your friends invite you to a party and it doesn't feel right, 
don't go. There is no better excuse than a global pandemic to be mm -hmm. able to do the right thing and encourage your friends to do the right thing too. It's fairly simple. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, I know a lot of people uh, in my own uh, group of under under 30, between 20 and 30, and they've told me how they just won't go to parties now. They won't, and yeah. they've told their friends, do not do this, you know, I don't, and they don't want to go to uh, situations where they don't know the people, they don't know the history of the people. Yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, it's one thing to, to have dinner with, you know, half dozen of your friends, but it's quite another thing to go to a, an indoor party with 20 people, uh, many of whom you don't know. Uh, that yeah. is uh, potentially a ticking time bomb. Jody Vance in for Mike for a couple of weeks here, and it is Baldry's Beat. We're mid-Baldry's Beat here, where the phone lines are open for you to call in and ask Keith Baldry whatever you want to ask Keith Baldry, whether it's about the COVID-19 numbers, what's happening in Washington State, uh, also Alberta numbers, and there's really nothing Keith hasn't followed along with over these last five-plus months of pandemic here. So 604-280-9898 or star 9898 is a toll-free call on your cell phone. And Keith, really a different sort of um, messaging seemed to come from Education Minister Rob Fleming. He was speaking at the legislature, right, yesterday? Is that what mm -hmm. I I just got it live yep. streaming on my Twitter. And I found it interesting because there was more discussion about the possibility of a little bit of a staggered, staggered return to school to make sure that teachers are ready and have all of the health and safety supports and training that they need. And maybe some discussions about possible outdoor classrooms. Like, why not a Cirque du Soleil style tent? It's not like we're having events all over town. Um, we could We could do a lot with some semi-permanent tents in certainly the lower mainlands. Uh, yeah, I've, uh, weather. I've, I've talked to the Minister Fleming about this. He says uh, districts are being very creative. Uh, and again, not every district is going to look the same. Not every school is going to look the same. Uh, it depends on your physical configurations of, of the school. It depends on your school population. Uh, mm -hmm. But you're going to see staggered starts. You're going to see staggered recesses, staggered lunchtime breaks. Uh, you've got situations such as Abbotsford's moving in their high schools, moving to a, a quarterly semester system, uh, which uh, and some kids will only take classes in the afternoon. Some kids will only take classes in the morning. Some of this was tried out in June in in some districts, uh, and you're going to see elements of that in, um, in in the startup in September. But it is it will vary from district to district. And some teachers on Twitter have told me that they've been told it's still 100% attendance 100% of the time. Um, which strikes me as uh, challenging because I, I don't see how you put 30 kids or 25 kids into a classroom that cannot accommodate social distancing. But I think you're going to see some measures that are going to be quite creative to ensure as much social distancing uh, occurs as, as possible. And also the messaging on masks is changing as well. Masks mm -hmm. are not going to be mandatory, but I think you're going to see uh, the widespread availab availability of masks uh, for uh, t for teachers, for students, for support staff. And I think over time you'll see just because of peer pressure and because everybody else is doing it, I might as well do it, that everybody will, will be wearing a mask in sort of grades over, uh, over grade four. But again, it won't be as a result of an ironclad rule that comes from Dr. Bonnie Henry. And there's yes. misconceptions about mask wearing in other provinces. People, some people think that Alberta has a mandatory mask required in schools, and that's not the case. There's, there's a numerous um, loopholes and options where you don't have to wear a mask in Alberta schools. Uh, they are required in hallways, for example, and that may very well be the case in B.C. schools. Uh, but uh, you're going to see some creativity, and it's not going to be one-size-fits-all, but there's still going to be a lot of apprehension and nervousness about the reopening of schools. Right. I had a lot of people going, they're even wearing masks in classrooms in Alberta. They're mandatory. I'm like, no, they're not. No, <laughs> no you just read the headline on that one. Um, okay, let's get to the callers here. 604-280-9898, star 9898, hands-free and toll-free on your cell. Janice in Vancouver, welcome to the program. Oh, Hi. Um, I'm just wondering, Keith, if you've heard any updates on visiting at seniors' homes. So I'm able to now see my mom uh, once a week, half hour, outdoors, supervised. Um, but, you know, mom still says, okay, well, can we go for breakfast? Can you take me for a walk? Um, I'd love to go for ice cream. And I'm like, no, can't do it, can't do it. Um, is there, do you know of anything in the pipeline in terms of, What's going to be happening with that? Yep. Yeah, so this is something I keep an eye on, and I actually talked to Adrian Dix, the health minister, about this quite a bit because we're both in the situation where we both have 
parents or in-laws in care homes, and right now we can't see them because it's one designated family member right now uh, can can see uh, someone in a senior in a long-term care facility. Um, the good news is all facilities now have safety plans to ensure uh, visitors. Now it's a work in progress. Uh, it's going to require at least a month's worth of data, of uh, data to um, to see how it's working. Um, so I think we're we're a ways away from having multiple visitors or for taking people out of facilities. But they're working on this, uh, Janice. It's not something that's uh, being ignored, but I think the work is taking some time, and it's going to take some time before we get to the next step of uh, more access. Does that answer your question, Janice? Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, keeping our eye on that. I'm also in that same uh, situation that you mentioned, you and Minister Dix. I am the chosen person in my family that gets access and uh it is it is such a relief on so many levels but certainly i can feel janice's uh stress because i'd love to take my dad out for lunch or Mm -hmm. out for an ice cream or what have you i will be however next week taking him to a medical appointment it's it's necessary we have to we have to leave the home to do that um so i'll report back on on what that is like because it it already feels weird even thinking about it let's go to mary and victoria welcome to the show mary hi I had a question for Keith and for you. Um, I think that the Ministry of Education has completely missed the boat uh, in this situation. It would have been terrific if they'd put together a province-wide curriculum for each grade, and then that could be followed by students at home online, and when they go back to school in September, that can be followed as well. But leaving everything up to the districts makes, you know, so much inconsistency <clears throat> in the education that the kids are getting. All right, Keith. Yeah, that's a, that's a valid point. Um, we are in a situation we've never been in before, so it literally uh, some people are making things up as they go along. The issue of the curriculum is an interesting one. I, I have talked to Minister Fleming about this. It's not an easy thing just to suddenly flip the curriculum on its head. In fact, the curriculum was just changed uh, last year after a n- long process that involved the BC Teachers Federation, Education Ministry officials, school trustees, and now to change it again in fundamental ways, I think would be would be challenging. But we're in a pandemic where things are going to occur that have never even been thought of before. So it's not inconceivable that uh, what Mary's talking about in terms of reshaping the curriculum to fit uh, uh, students' needs in new ways, whether it's online or in class, is something that may well occur because we're going to be in this pandemic for a long time. So what we see announced on August 26th, which is the the plans for the districts, are going to change undoubtedly as we go through this thing. And, And they could change in some really substantial ways. And I'm with you on that one, uh, Keith. That's what, as a parent, I've got a 12-year-old. I'm very much invested in this. Uh, he's in public school. He's about to go to grade eight. Uh, and I don't know what high school even looks like without a pandemic, never mind with one. Um, and yet having to trust the the people making the plan. And I want to squeeze in this one clip here because Dr. Henry clarified something, the concept of return to school, as many people are still a bit confused. Have a listen. They are the, the point, uh, the end of our hierarchy of controls, the layers that we need, the most, uh, the least effective of the layers that we need. Some people believe that means they're going to have close contact with 60 people every day, which is not the concept at all. So the, trying to explain the cohort concept, the learning group, how to wear masks, what is going to happen, all of those things, as you just mentioned, Keith, going to be explained in the days and weeks to come as the, peop- as the, the, the greatest of minds that we could find in British Columbia are at that table, trying to make things as safe as humanly possible for our kids going back to school. As always, a pleasure to do Baldry's Beat with you. I'll see you tomorrow. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD.
I'm Jody Vance in for Mike Smith this week. And in case you missed it off the top of today's show, we had Attorney General David Eby on with us. And he gave us a bit of a timeline of his dealings with the Vancouver Park Board on expediting the politics of allowing legal alcohol consumption in parks and at beaches. Here's the history of it from Mr. Eby. Vancouver is the only city in British Columbia with a park board uh, and the liquor regulation uh, in British Columbia is not totally clear. Uh, I agree it could be clearer uh, that the park board has authority over parks with respect to liquor. And so the initial discussion was, okay, uh, you know, maybe we should have the act amended, change the law for the park board. And we had a look at it and we said, look, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, there's a bunch of uh, competing spots uh, for the available legislature time. We're sitting in August already. The schedule is full. We realistically can't get this on the on the board uh, and implemented. And, and I looked at the timelines. It was looking like about a year. So we needed something that was going to work uh, and that was going to respond to the park boards. What I understood the park board's request to be, which is that they were going to designate some parks uh, where people could drink and uh, that they were going to allow that to happen. So uh, staff here did a ton of work on how that could happen. They prepared uh, draft regulations to allow the uh, these parks to be designated by the regulator, the uh, liquor and cannabis uh, regulation uh, branch of the Ministry of Attorney General that would designate these parks as areas where you could drink. So sounded great, right? Easy, turnkey. No. Uh, unfortunately, uh, voted against um, that uh, provision and said that they preferred to have the act amended. And I was, you know, I was surprised uh, given the work that had happened at the staff level about that. And, and yeah. so I wrote them a letter. And I said, I just want to be really clear here so that you understand if you want to have drinking in the parks this year, this is how it has to happen. And, and I'm surprised you voted against it. Um, so can you clarify for me that, that you don't actually want that to happen this year? So then... We think, okay, well, the Canucks are also headed into a pandemic postseason. Even Dr. Bonnie Henry wants our playoff parties to happen outside. Well, I was very happy to see the Canucks and just um, lamenting to my colleagues who are Leafs fans. Sorry. Um, But you know what? This is the year where we can celebrate the Canucks with our close friends or outside on a patio with a small group. And we can do that in broad places all over the province rather than just small crowded places here and there. And, you know, we need to bear in mind, as we've just talked about, that, um, you know, bars and restaurants have restrictions in place for the protection of all of us, their staff and the patrons, so that it's safe for all of us to go to work, um, for people to to enjoy their time there. And they will be, I am sure, looking at how they can safely maximize small groups of people in, in those settings to celebrate if the Canucks, if and when the Canucks keep going. Um, But let's do it together. Let's do it with our best friends in a small group outside. And, uh, you know, how often can we celebrate hockey playoffs in the summer? So let's make it a special time this year to do it outside with our small groups of friends. Wouldn't it be great to sit outside, maybe have the parks uh, put up like a screen and everybody can physically distance and, you know, do the right thing and, and, and go through this together and find a little joy in that? It is a tough haul uh, in a pandemic for all leaders. There's no doubt about that. One who always picks up the phone when we call is our next guest, Park Board Commissioner John Cooper, joining us on the line. Hey, John. Hey, Jody. Good to have you. Now, just having had that sort of history lesson from our Attorney General, David Eby, you and I have gone back and forth on the uh, responsible consumption of alcohol legally in Parks and Ed Beaches. Is there a way to bring this back to a motion of some sort in an emergency situation that could have this happen this summer during this pandemic? Or has the, the horse left the barn? I think the horse left the barn. The city has designated four sites in the city, including the large square in front of the art gallery. Uh, the park board did vote to allow uh, drinking in parks, but they wanted to make sure the legislation was clear, and uh, that's that's what happened. And and I also had an amendment because I believe we should be selling uh, beer and wine in our concessions because if if anything, this has told us is that we we have a lot of financial difficulty right now with so many facilities closed. So yeah. as restaurants and bars have started to sell off sales, I believe the park board concessions in it as well, and that was supported uh, by the by the park board. So 
it's going to happen. Uh, I would like to have seen it uh, happen sooner, but that's that's the reality of it. I mean, we've got a lot of big problems to deal with right now, especially across the city, whether it be Strathcona and and the, the continued closure of Stanley Park and. So there's a lot of big issues, and um, I'd like to see some of those tackled as well. So that, that's a big priority for me. I don't know. Pick which one you want to start with on that. Where are we at with regard to the interactions when the, when the Park Board commissioners gather? What is the messaging with regard to Strathcona as we see things escalating there? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tents and now campers and, and allegations of kids being you know, abused by uh, some at the encampment. Yeah, people are really upset across the city, and uh, I, both Tricia Barker and I, the two NPA commissioners, going back almost two years to Oppenheimer, believe that there should be an injunction for the health and safety of the neighborhoods to clear those parks. I mean, uh, I think people are actually more unsafe in that uh, enclosed environment where the VPD can't really see what's going on. They're not allowing the police into those sites. I mean, it's an outrageous situation as far as I'm concerned. Uh, this has gone on way too long. We had Oppenheimer. We had a death there. We had a, somebody who was raped and tortured inside of a tent. I believe one of those people is still at large. Um, you know, you have to have some rules in a civil society. And it seems that nobody wants to take action. And, I, and, and you know, we spent $100 million on two hotels to house 200 people. That's 50000 or 500000 per per person. I mean, it's... You know, that should have been spent on rehabilitation and getting people off drugs, not putting them in a hotel and supplying them with drugs. I, I just don't understand the thinking here. I understand your frustration. I can hear it in your voice. Where do we go from here? It feels like we're all stuck mice on a wheel here, just spinning. What does the chair say when you bring forward the need to take action in Strathcona? Well, we're just not hearing anything. In fact, uh, COPE Commissioner uh, Gwen Giesbrecht has publicly said that she would not, under any circumstances, support an injunction. I mean, I, I just think that's that's just a dereliction of duty, to be honest. Yeah. The two, uh, the chair and the vice chair, are both Green commissioners. They're part of the same party as Pete Fry. Pete Fry had an allocation at uh, Strathcona. Luckily for him, it didn't turn um, bad. Uh, I know, I know Councillor Fry is very concerned. I would hope that he could convince two, uh, all he'd have to do is convince two of the green members of the park board to seek an injunction. To take and action. Our new bylaw hasn't passed yet because it, it's not going to pass until September. So this tenting bylaw has not actually, is not on the books. We're still under the old rules. I believe we should seek an injunction. And if it's challenged by the courts, take it to a higher court. We need to keep our parks safe for everybody. Can the can uh, VPD or Vancouver Fire take action? Um, certainly, they they enter the park if there's a if there's an imminent uh, health and safety issue. For instance, if there's a, a violent altercation or something like that. But their normal process is to monitor the situation from outside the park, um, and you know it. They um, it could maybe be done under the Provincial Health Act, like was done at, at Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. I mean, even that park still remains closed. We've reseeded it. The sprinklers are on. I'm concerned as soon as the fence comes down, we're going to have another encampment there. Right. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith alongside our good friend uh, John Cooper, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. We want to talk about some good news for sure in this segment. But before we get to the opening of those 12 fitness centres, John, I want to talk quickly about... Stanley Park. Um, We hear Bruce Allen on his reality check easily three times a week, reiterating his frustrations with how Stanley Park has been taken over uh, by the Vancouver Park Board. The agenda of, um, you know, shutting down one lane to a separated bike lane and not having the seawall open to um, our community cyclists as opposed to our, you know, road bike riding clip-in cyclists. And I say that uh, knowing that it's going to frustrate people that I say it in that way. But having seen families firsthand struggling up that uh, prospect prospect point hill, you know, thinking that they were going to ride around Stanley Park as they have had for decades uh, is frustrating to see it continue. Are we stuck with this? Is this going to become permanent or... It, At least it, until a new park board is is elected, 
it's supposed to be a pilot program, but it, it, it's starting to feel that way. You know, uh, both Trisha Barker and I, NPA commissioners, were opposed to this, wanted to see the park reopen to uh, the, the seawall be open to leisure cyclists and the rest of the seawall across the rest of the city, all the way along the city, whether it be uh, False Creek, um, all along the city is working fine under the old system. And for some, you know, this is, I think, a highly uh, political motivated uh, um, situation that they're trying to push a push an agenda. And mm-hmm. I think it's absolutely disgraceful. We've had about, I think, 25,000 people have signed a p- petition this this cope green alliance just has has this activist agenda and uh they don't want to move off it so it's a big concern and um and it's also really hurting the businesses and our business partners in the park uh, um like uh, the tea house and prospect point and and even even the uh the horse-drawn trolley so um just there seems to be no understanding of the business case for making sure we're supporting our partners who have been great partners with the park board for many years and help us Give us revenue so we can look after parks. And, we're and that's where I was going to go next. The revenue is significant that is being lost to the to, to the use of the parking that's been blocked off, as well of as the fact that people are just not going to Stanley Park like they did before because they can't. Very few people walk the entirety of Stanley Park when they visit. And when it's next to impossible to drive through the park uh, because of the backlogs, if you happen to get behind a horse-drawn carriage or, or, or the like, it's, it's a non-starter for so many. It's so sad. Yeah, the horse-drawn carriage goes to about four kilometers an hour. So if you get stuck behind that, you're not going anywhere um, for a while. And uh, I think there's a lot of frustration and, uh, you know, the park worked very well before. I, yeah. I don't see the reason. I did support it early on in the in the pandemic because we wanted to make sure we were doing everything to keep people safe. And I think now people are, you know, they're physically distancing on, on, right. the, on the rest of the seawall around Falls Creek. And uh, there's no problem. I see bikes and pedestrians every day. And uh, we need to get we need to really get back to that. And we need to help these uh, businesses and, and, and actually help the park board because we get a we get a percentage of that revenue. And right now our revenue is down, I think, in the range of about thirty million on a on a hundred and twenty million dollar a year budget. So that's that's really uh, difficult. Well, we rode our bikes around the False Creek Seawall yesterday afternoon, and it was fantastic. Open up the seawall in Stanley Park to leisure cyclists. Keep the road bikes off the the leisure path. I'm fine with that. Keep the keep road, those road, the road bikes road bike on the road. Could, could could share the road with the vehicles. Yeah. They've done it for years, and and nobody yeah. nobody's had a problem with that. No. Okay, let's uh, let's take some time here to talk about the fitness centers that are opening for so many people. This is vital, John. Yeah, it's nice to it's nice to have some good news because yeah, I know <laughs> I'll be a bit negative here this morning. But so twelve uh, fitness centers opening in uh, mid September, and also the arenas. So Caresdale, Sunset, uh, Trout Lake arenas will be uh, will be open, uh, not fully open because uh, initially the arenas will be available for organized play by permit holders. Uh, but plans are to expand that access once uh, we get things rolling. So that, I think that's great for those, um, you know, kids who are who are skating, uh, figure skating, or playing hockey and that sort of thing, and and um, you know the, the the team sports, and um, so important that we become stay physically active. Going by that Caresdale Arena and seeing the sign that said "closed until further notice," COVID nineteen, it always gave me that sinking feeling. So the equal and opposite reaction is, "Yay, let's open that, even if it's at low capacity." And and keeping in mind when using these twelve fitness centers and spaces that are going to be opening in mid September, that we are doing so with all public health orders in place. So we have to be, you know, patient. And and uh, and find our way, like we are finding at Kitts Pool. I mean, I'm booking my appointment to go and and swim my laps at, at Kitts Pool. It's it's weird. Yeah. It's not ideal, but it's open. So and I'm people grateful. Are doing, people are doing the same at the Bloedel Conservatory and Van Dusen Gardens, and they're right. getting out. And the park uses up tremendously. That's the thing. I mean, this is one thing that this pandemic has taught us is that the value of our parks are so important to everybody and i think if anything that maybe something good will come out of this that we'll see uh in the future more emphasis on um, on this green space in the city i think so john and i hope that 
as I was speaking with our good friend uh, George Affleck a little bit earlier, that the piece that is so vital right now as everybody's feeling the anxieties, but also taking a breath and looking around and and having some time to sort of noodle what might work is that consultation piece. If we can get the agenda politics off the table and actually come together and look at what's best for our city on so many levels, uh, we can make this pandemic be filled with silver linings of how we can create those spaces that work best for our community. Yeah, I think so. And I think our, you know, we've had a long history in Vancouver of having a great park system that I'm very proud to be uh, associated with. And, you know, when you go up to QE Park and you see some of the color and, and you go into some of the nice gardens around Stanley Park, I mean, it gives people a lot of joy and getting into nature like that is so, so important. So I think, uh, even even something like just our medians in the street being in good shape, and, yeah. and uh, I go to, I drive out to Richmond. I notice they they plant a lot of flowers down their center medians, and it, it also just gives you a bit of an uplift and makes you feel good. And um, while there is some cost involved, I think that on balance, um, it makes people just feel so much prouder of their city and feel that we have a nice, clean, and safe city. And I think we need to we need to really work on that and get back to this like a clean and safe city. And I'd, I'd like to see the mayor step up here um you know he's been silent uh, you know you tell you he's phoning ottawa or he's phoning the province but doesn't seem to be accomplishing much and um i think we need some you know get it going here in vancouver we have a lot to be proud of Jody Vanson for Mike Smith, and we are turning our attention south of the border. And to do that, we connect with Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington producer and correspondent. Uh, hey, Reggie, thanks for doing this. Good morning. I don't know where to start. Let's start with the COVID, uh, current COVID-19 numbers and sort of where we're at overall in the U.S., well, look, the, the, I mean, the numbers continue to go up. We're now up and over the 5.1 million mark when it comes to confirmed cases, at least according to Johns Hopkins University. And that death toll is on the north side to at least approaching now 164,000. Well, there is a kind of sign across the United States that there may be kind of an easing of cases or at least fewer spikes. Uh, we are still seeing a growing number of states posting a daily increase. Uh, Florida posted roughly 6,000 cases today, uh, the second day in a row where it actually went below 6,000, but its death toll is now at a record high of 273 in a 24-hour period. Oh, that's those numbers are just astounding. How they're becoming normalized is the part of this that is so shocking. Um, back to school time in the United States is upon us, whereas here in Canada, we don't go back to school until after Labor Day. Not so in the United States. How is that going? Well, yeah, I mean, look, there are some school districts in Tennessee that went back at the end of July. Most of uh, or at least a good chunk of the United States went back uh, late last week and early this week. And we're already seeing uh, the impacts of what happens when you have schools that don't have proper social distancing policies or mask requirements in place. Uh, in Florida, one school district, there are now 400 plus kids in quarantine after at least a dozen tested positive. 21 staff members also tested positive. And it's something we're seeing pop up across states now, uh, you know, kind of going against that that mantra from the president that kids are essentially immune uh, we're now seeing that the science that health experts have been saying uh, for the last several months is playing out before us where kids may not get uh, severe symptoms but they're able to be infected and they're able to potentially transmit that uh, around to people that are around them so this is now a concern not only for school districts and administrators but for parents still trying to weigh whether or not their kids should go back it is really kind of quite something. We were talking with Keith Baldry, our global legislative bureau chief, uh, on Baldry's beat when we were talking about Washington State specifically, because this is the other side of this border. I mean, you know, you know the ge geographical uh, setup we have here. We're just seconds away. We're a heartbeat away from Washington State, and the numbers there have been off the charts throughout this pandemic and finally sort of starting to come into line. But they saw a surge in young people in the 20 to 39 set or even the younger than that, 20 to 29. Uh, and then here we are a number of weeks later and the, the death toll was much lower, but now it's the 70 year olds once again who are becoming the larger number of test case positives. And the, the line being drawn is to those younger people who may have had a uh, low level of virus impacting their lives and yet were able to transmit it to others in their family, whether it be uh, parents or grandparents or what have you. And that leads to the trend that then, you know, 
sees a rise in the death toll. It is all such a precariously perched um, pandemic uh, equation that we're trying to follow here. And certainly the one thing um, that Canada's beginning to see buy-in on Reggie is is mask wearing. In some provinces, it has become mandatory. Here in BC, it is not mandatory, yet it is urged in places uh, where physical distancing is not possible. Could you speak to what we saw? Uh, certainly, um, it, it was quite a, a vision, the uh, the video of over 200,000 bikers gathering uh, to stand up against masks. Yeah, look, this is the largest gathering the United States has now had since this pandemic began. And South Dakota is already known for having uh, more lax policies than other states around the country when it comes to uh, mitigation efforts to slow the spread. And uh, you had several hundred thousand people gathered together, pushing back, uh, back on masks where they were uh, kind of spoken of but not required for people that were in attendance. And there were a, a significant number of people that were uh, a part of this crowd that really pushed back by saying it's their choice or the masks don't do anything, or the virus simply isn't going to impact them. And that is, you know, something that we still see growing across this country, whether or not it's in schools or whether or not it's as people put themselves back out into social settings on patios where masks may not be uh, the number one accessory that they want to be carrying. And, you know, while we're hearing what kind of masks do and don't work if you are outside, health experts now have been saying for months that if you wear one, it will help slow the spread. It's not a catch-all. It's not going to be the perfect way to stop the virus, but it's stops the potential spread of it. And when you have these super spreader events, whether it's a biker rally, whether it's a church gathering that turns into a concert style setting on the West Coast, or whether it's these schools that are now open, you run the risk to watch these numbers start to increase again, uh, because there is no national rollout. And it really still is county by county. And when we're talking about the bikers against mask wearing, we could also reference a very successful NASCAR event where for the first time in a pandemic, 30,000 people were able to gather and wear masks or sit in their bu- bubble and, and, and have that physical distancing piece and be very successful in enjoying a much-loved sporting event. Yeah, I mean, look, health, again, doctors have said uh, it's not difficult to pick up a mask and put it over your face. It simply is no. a political will to not do it. And when you've had these driving forces coming from political leaders, notably in the Republican Party, that say you shouldn't be forced to wear a mask or that masks aren't going to do anything, or you see the president kind of with this on again, off again attitude uh, about mask wearing, you see that it can be done. You see that it can make an impact. It simply is that will of do I want to give up my quote unquote rights uh, when it comes to covering my my face. That's such an odd argument. But you brought him up. You brought the Republicans up. Let's talk a little bit about Trump in particular. Um, His interrupted uh, briefing yesterday was certainly uh, one that piqued our attention. Yeah, I mean, look, the president uh, whisked away from that uh, from the podium three minutes into his press conference. There was a situation that took place out uh, on the street at 17th Street in Pennsylvania, just about a block from the front door of the White House, uh, where uh, the Secret Service had uh, taken somebody down who had claimed they were armed. We now know that that suspect was not carrying any kind uh, of weapon. But given the vicinity of where they were standing, uh, it was kind of a, a quick action by Secret Service. The president was whisked into the oval, not into the bunker, uh, but came out a couple of minutes later gave that little bit of information but at the end of the day it didn't stop the president from standing at the podium providing misinformation and then again going into a kind of a stream of consciousness about uh about the economy and about the election and not anything about the actual pandemic that continues to take its toll and what of that Weird, I want to say rather debacle of executive order signing at his Bedminster golf course over the weekend. Yeah, I mean, look, this is going to face some serious legal and constitutional challenges because, uh, you know, in one part of these uh, executive acts, the president was trying to rewrite the tax code, uh, which is something that is solely done by Congress. Uh, but then he also tried to sign in order uh, and go around Congress a new unemployment benefit, which would be half of what. Americans were getting until that benefit expired at the end of July, then required states to chip in. Now it doesn't require states to chip in. But most importantly, the money the president is trying to go after sits in a pot for FEMA, which is the emergency response organization that deals with hurricane uh, uh, recovery. Uh, And we're about to hit peak hurricane season uh, in the United States. So the president really is kind of putting himself up against a wall and and really clawing at the bottom here to try and get something. 
Jody Vanson for Mike Smith, continuing our chat with good friend Reggie Cicchini of Global News in Washington, D.C., producer and correspondent there. And Reggie, you know I love to talk the polls with you because depending on who you follow on social media, you get numbers thrown at you and you're like, I don't know. Who's up? Who's down? Where are the points? What's going on? But we did have that Professor Lichtman who has correctly predicted every presidential election since the 80s, finally used his mathematical keys uh, just this past week to to give his prediction. He did one small caveat saying, you know, much can change between now and November 3rd. But he did predict that it would be Joe Biden. Uh, That's not a poll. But I know there are polling numbers that go into his keys. So can you give us the latest on what what your poll nerdiness is finding? Yeah, look, Joe Biden continues to enjoy a a lead over Donald Trump, uh, both on a national level and broken down on a state level. Nationally, uh, Joe Biden sits with a 10-point lead, uh, kind of plus or minus a few, over Donald Trump. Uh, But there were some new polls that just came out today from Marquette Law, uh, and they were dealing with uh, more of those swing states that are important to both of these men right now, and of likely voters in Wisconsin, which the president is is kind of eyeing right now. Joe Biden leads by five points, 49% 49% to 44%. We're also seeing Joe Biden have a very slight lead uh, in a state like Ohio that the president carried in 2016. Joe Biden now leading in that state by two points. And yes, there is a lot that can change between now and the election. There's a lot that could change between now uh, and two minutes from now that could impact yeah. somebody's poll numbers. But at the end of the day, most polls do still show Joe Biden leading, if not by a small margin, by a double digit margin, contrary to the president's comments that his poll numbers are better. Right. And that's what makes it so confusing. And you can you can see the the neighbors arguing across the fence, depending on which headlines they're reading or what cable news outlet they might be tuning into or what have you. Uh, How much might uh, Vice President Joe Biden's uh, VP pick play into his numbers? uh, And and is that why we're sort of all being held at bay here um, as to who his choice might be? Has there been a leak on that front that has got any sort of legs to it, Reggie? Well, I mean, look, there, there are kind of lists that have been out there and whittled down, and we know that there were certain people flying in and out of Delaware over the last couple of days to have conversations with the president, including uh, 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 Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Uh, we also know today that the chief of staff to whoever that vice presidential pick might be was also chosen, uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre, and she, you know, this is where you kind of have to read the tea leaves potentially, was on stage with Kamala Harris last year uh, doing an interview when somebody had approached the stage and she quickly rushed uh, Kamala Harris off uh, off to the side. You know, this is one of those things where people are saying kind of read between the lines. Mm. Could this be it? It's still kind of that those close numbers between Kamala Harris, between uh, Susan Rice and between a couple of congressional representatives. Uh, and this could have uh, an impact on on the poll numbers here because Joe Biden has been pressured now not only to choose the woman that he said he was going to choose, but to choose a black woman to be more uh, inclusive and more identifiable with this ever growing uh, Democratic Party. Seeing interviews with Susan Rice, you can, you can see the power of this woman in terms of she's been there, done that, had the role. From, from a Democratic side, she'd be a, a really easy fit, but could uh, lead that never Trump or Republican to go in another direction because of her association with the Obama presidency. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, look, if somebody like Susan Rice is chosen, uh, there have been criticisms from the Democratic Party that she's never been an elected leader. Uh, she was appointed to her position uh, as national security advisor mm-hmm. by Barack Obama, but also she was heavily involved uh, in the Benghazi investigation. She was heavily involved yeah. in that conversation with Bill Clinton. Uh, and, you know, we could end up in a but her emails kind of situation here. And there's an opportunity that the Republicans could lash out at that and say, uh, you know, that this is a part of the deep state, quote unquote, that is being pulled back into the kind of democratic circles here. But at the end of the day, it is still a high profile and high powered woman, uh, a powerful woman uh, that would, uh, according to Democrats and, and people close to Joe Biden, would simply be there to uh, kind of aid and assist uh, the president if it happens to be President Biden. Right. She checks a lot of boxes uh, in terms of experience, whether elected official being one of them or not. But certainly going back to Kamala Harris and those early uh, debates where Biden and Harris very much faced off against one another, the most notable being I was that girl. Um, and, And some 
thinking that perhaps the the acrimony that was built over the course of those democratic debates might not be something that the two can get past. What do you say to those who might throw that down as a reason for Kamala, Kamala Harris not being the front runner here? Well, I mean, it would be hard to stand up on the stage trying to become the president of, you know, the most powerful world uh, country in the world and simply not have any kind of aggression or not any kind of a- ambition uh, while you're standing up there trying to become the number one on stage. And look, these these, these moments that you see uh, on stage are an opportunity to put your uh, uh, kind of opinion and attitude and strength to show and try to put somebody else down, but it also potentially could show that you have that ability to stand up and be able to take what's going to come at you in, uh, you know, the second most powerful position uh, in Washington if she is chosen to become the vice president. These were moments uh, that were simply to try and get the points of a debate out there. It started and sparked a national conversation, uh, which could potentially have led to uh, the shift that we're in right now. Uh, and I think that, you know, from conversations with people and from what we're hearing within the Biden party. Uh, it's not something that he was looking down upon. It's something that was embraced uh, and led to people being able to openly and have these kinds of discussions in public. Which I just love that answer to the question, because the, the follow up for me is if she were a man, nobody would be questioning that it would look like strength. It would look like power. Yeah, and look, we've been hearing story after story about people coming out saying uh, if a woman is chosen to be vice president uh, and she shows that she's really into the job, that she's going to look too ambitious for trying to take the job of president uh, four or eight years from now when you wouldn't have that with a man, when at the end of the day, 14 vice presidents have gone on to become president. They were all male and none of them were called ambitious. It is just wild gender politics at play. Reggie, as always, it is uh, so great to have an opportunity to talk things through with you. When do you think, I only got 30 seconds here, when do you think the, the pick might come down? Are, are you feeling like the next couple of days, have they said this week? We thought that it was going to come down this morning or early this afternoon. It didn't happen. It's got to happen by next week, though, because the Democratic National Convention starts up virtually and he has to stand there or at least be in conversation with who that vice presidential person is going to be. So this is something that is going to happen sometime in the next 72 to 96 hours, possibly the next one to two minutes. Keep us posted. We'll be following along on social media and, of course, watching on Global News. That is Reggie Cicchini, our Washington producer and correspondent. Thanks for this. Thank you.